Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Sorry for our schnozzies. I'm so sniffly. You don't sound so sniffly today. You have been very sniffly. I have a very weird nose problem, but right now it seems to be doing quite well. Let's see how we're going in. I know, mine is not. And also we're recording early, which we've never done before. And Dolly's taken to the new recording time very well. Very prompt. (laughs) Pandora and CJ now know that I'm officially not a morning person because I've just put Sudafed blocked nose spray in my own eye. (laughs) Panda's cold is from having a toddler and working too hard. Mine is from being too groovy. This word. And on Friday, I sent a broadcast message to a WhatsApp group And it was just a video of me pouring myself a gin and tonic with the caption, the groove rumbles on. What time was that? 11 o'clock. In the morning? No, I'm not that groovy in the evening. On the next day I saw them and they were like, that video was really like not as wild as you thought it was. It was like an elegant slice of lemon in a tumbler and you were just making yourself a gin and tonic at 11 o'clock. Anyway. Do you think you're forcing the groove? I think there's a risk of me potentially forcing the groove for personal branding reasons. Panda, I've, <laughs> I've got a really good headline for you. Pampa- is that all you do? That's, pa- that's you reading the news, isn't it? <laughs> Just the headlines. How did you know? Five years of doing a <laughs> so kind of good morning, podcast. <laughs> Pampered Badger family visits Woman's Garden for slap-up dinner every night. When Stockport local Christine Ian, 53, found out that badgers were living in her garden, she thought it would be nice to leave them a snack once in a while. She started by leaving out the odd bit of food here and there. But it wasn't long before the badgers were comfortable approaching when she was around and started visiting her garden more regularly. Over the next 14 years, Christine's bond with the four badgers grew stronger and stronger, and she even has a hand feeding them at her patio door. She ended up giving them names too, Mr and Mrs Lumpy, Humbug and Baby Bella. Sometimes she pushes the boat out, putting together a full-on badger afternoon tea with biscuits, scones and pate on toast. And I've seen pictures of it. It's on one of those tiered, you know, formal miniature sandwich displays. Like the Ritz. Yeah, literally like the Ritz, yeah. She has made a rod for her own back. I know. I think anyone could probably have predicted that should you put a little bit of food out and then turn it into a sort of Claridge's banquet, then the badgers will start coming. <laughs> Speaking of badgers, this is an interesting segue, we're creeping towards the general election. <laughs> and last week's question time with the party leaders was essential, if not frustrating, viewing for its emphasis on single issues. None of them talked enough about the NHS. Some of them didn't talk about it at all. Um, although the NHS was included in the Tory manifesto, which came out yesterday, Boris Johnson's already been accused of deceit after what was largely decried as an unrealistic promise of 50,000 more nurses turned out to include 
18,500 existing nurses. Back to question time. Corbyn focused almost entirely on a broadband internet, open up new areas of business. Sturgeon on independence. Johnson on Brexit with some defensive past comments on burkas and letterboxes. And Swinson, who seems to have received the most criticism, spent most of her time on the past just defending her support of tuition fees and austerity. There have been a lot of complaints about there being seemingly no Lib Dem supporters at all Mm. in the crowd. Mm. Um, I didn't feel like really any of them, though, had masses of supporters. To be honest, the only one that I thought... Corbyn was quite jovial. Boris Johnson was quite fed up. Um, I actually found Sturgeon probably the most, like, on it. Mm. But I think it's very... I think the format is... I think Fiona Bruce was amazing. She got so much criticism for that. I thought oh, she was, why? I think it was an impossible task, to be honest. Um, I think people just said that she wasn't really... Again, just sort of wasn't really, I suppose, on it enough or being pertinent enough. But actually, she was... I mean, she's her knowledge was amazing because uh, there was someone in the audience who said... Because obviously Jeremy Corbyn won't ever reveal if he voted leave or remain. Mm. And someone in the audience was like, well, actually, Harold Wilson did that in the 70s. Mm. And Fiona Bruce, um, just like very slickly before she went on to the next question, was like, but he did actually express his personal opinion. And then went on, you know, she just had that incredible Mm. knowledge. Um, Mm. But I think there was going to be criticism of it either way. But I do find it really frustrating. It was like they all picked one thing to talk about. And I suppose for me, it was frustrating just because the thing that I am actually always most interested in is um, healthcare. is healthcare. Yeah. And there's just not that much of that. Anyway, the Tory manifesto is out and there was lots about it on Twitter yesterday. So um, check that out if you're interested. In commitment to keeping this a Brexit-free podcast, let's move on to other news of the Animal Orient, your favourite, Dolly. Yes, please. Three pairs of beavers are to be released in South England to build dams that will reduce the risk of flooding after heavy rain. Oh, that's so nice of them to have a job. I love how homegrown a solution that sounds. There's yeah. obviously been like really terrible flooding. Yeah. And six fluffy little beavers. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, I just thought it sounded quite idealistic. Oh, I love that. It's like the animals are farthing wood. Exactly. I see them with like a little top hat on and a briefcase. It's like. Just saving the UK. You know the um, expression a working cocker? Yes. Which they probably use on a straightforward shooting weekend. I remember Sophie Wilkinson hearing the phrase working cocker and she genuinely said to me, do they wear a miniature shirt and tie? (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think they'd be on a straightforward shooting weekend. I think it would probably be like a beagle. Oh, would it be a beagle on a straightforward one? I don't know, but a working cocker is... Because that's a cocker spaniel, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, they're normally on farms. So I grew up surrounded by farms and they're always... A couple of working cockers. I love a working cocker. And what do they work as? What do they work as? I feel like they sort of... Are they like just sort of an assistant? Don't they sort of help... Aren't they a bit sheepdoggy? You know the way the sheepdogs round up sheep? Yeah, but then they... But you don't see a spaniel running after a sheep, do you? I don't know. Maybe they make lunch. Maybe they make a good ham sandwich. (laughs) A side note, beaver is my... Working cocker is also a bit saucy. Beaver is my favourite term for the Fandango. Oh my God, now that you say it, I know it's 9am and this is a little bit early, CJ, for this sort no, of saucy. No, it was meant to be 9am, Dolly. It's now 9.36. Working cocker is a great piece of slang. Yeah. I've never heard it. Have be- you got a working cocker? No, I've never heard it either. <laughs> I think you should write I update all my dating profiles looking for a working cocker. Yeah, no broken ones need apply. The middle class brunch menu is under threat. According to the Observer, halloumi demand will soon 
outstrips supply. That that actually is a tragedy. I love halloumi. I'm obsessed with halloumi. Other middle class foods that are in short supply: avocados, hummus, and coconuts. Oh, but they've been saying that about avocados for years, haven't they? Which would you miss the most? Oh, halloumi cheese. I love halloumi. Thank God you clarified halloumi cheese. (laughs) So it's so formally to really (laughs) declare it. I think halloumi is the most delicious thing on the planet. I'd be more bummed out about avocado as I struggle to find healthy food that fills me up. And I know that says a lot about my cooking or lack thereof. No, avocado is very easy, but halloumi, I... (sighs) Halloumi's more delicious than avocado's. But you can't wake up and eat halloumi from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed, whereas avocado can take you through the whole day. I used to, of a Sunday, my brunch that I would always make for my husband and I was bacon, halloumi and avocado, but whole packets of each one. So half a halloumi each, half an avocado each and half a packet of bacon each. And I soon realised that we might die quite soon if I carried on like that. I should have married you and I had the chance. <laughs> I think you need to go for two of the three. So from yeah. now on, we have to pick. I have, rotate. I have a halloumi is the staple of a sort of shishi bougie vegetarian full English. Yeah. It's just, and it's just delicious. It's a good bacon supplement, I think. If you're craving something salty and fatty, halloumi is good. Homes have been offered for all 60 British children caught up in ISIS conflict and currently in Syrian refugee camps. And on the cover of every newspaper this week, the murder of British backpacker Grace Mullane in New Zealand. The 27-year-old defendant who's been found guilty after a three-week trial but sentencing won't happen until next year didn't deny killing Grace after meeting her on Tinder but said that she died accidentally during consensual choking during sex. I wanted to flag a piece by Sophie Wilkinson um, on this subject because I think she just absolutely nailed it writing for the Huffington Post on what we can learn about victim blaming and an attitude of imperiousness around female sexuality and pleasure. She writes, BDSM to its self-proclaimed swats is built on trust and consent. Regardless of whether Grace fully understood the boundaries of BDSM, listing her likes and dislikes on fetish sites and dating apps seems to suggest she did. The accused should have known not to kill her because this wasn't a sex game gone wrong. This was violence against women gone the way it normally does. Instead of treating BDSM as a complicated indie film that young women's stinky little brains can't wrap their heads around, we should acknowledge that women's rights to exist safely, to have sex safely, to fantasise safely, are things that still unfortunately elude certain men. Not all men, but enough men for women in the UK alone to be 33 times more likely than a man to be killed by a partner or ex-partner. 33 times. Enough for Grace to be the 59th British woman whose death was followed by a sex game gone wrong defence. Enough for rape convictions to be the lowest on record. And enough is enough. To save other women like Grace, we needn't pore over women's willingness to experiment. Rather, we should challenge men nearly always older than their female partners who think they're the only ones who know the rules of pleasure. Because at the heart of it, women don't crave their own destruction. They crave the pretense that it will never happen the way it so often does. Really powerfully written piece, that, as Mm. well. And for anyone who's confused about what BDSM is, which is universally acknowledged as like an ethical and consensual practice and a place of like safety and fantasy as Sophie mentions in her payoff rather than um an invitation for danger I think it's just such an important piece to really have to fucking spell that out and I think to be fair the only exposure that some people will have had to BDSM if they don't practice it themselves is um, Fifty Shades of Grey. I mm. don't think it's something that you would know a lot about. And when I was reading about the case 
and I started reading that she had um, enjoyed choking during sex, I did think for a moment, oh, well, then maybe that was it. Of course, I then read that he left her dead in his room while he went on a date with another woman that night. Mm -hmm. And I then read that he would have had to choke her for five to ten minutes for her to get the... um, injuries that she did mm. whereas I imagine that consensual choking is a matter of seconds rather oh, than, yeah. than minutes and and it, the whole point is this murder had nothing to do with her her interest in BDSM no I'm not saying it did what I'm saying is if you don't know a lot about yes. it and you first read that you might have thought oh okay well maybe it was just a tragic accident And then when you read more about it, of course, it becomes apparent that this is not something that could have happened through consensual safe play. But I do think that it's a practice that a lot of people are unfamiliar with, that they might see as scary or threatening. And that unless you read more about it and then read how it's being misused in court. The rough sex defence line has risen 90% over the last decade, according to The Guardian. Uh, You mentioned the 59 women killed in consensual violence in the UK, doll. The rough sex defence was used in 18 of those cases over five years, and nine of those cases were successful with that line as a defence during trial. So That just makes me despair. I do wonder, is the rough sex line the news she asked for it? Sophie Martin tweeted, and I think this kind of encapsulates everything I feel about it. Enjoying sex didn't kill her. Being a member of BDSM sites didn't kill her. Liking rough or kinky sex didn't kill her. Solo travelling didn't kill her. Enjoying life as a young single woman didn't kill her. Stop blaming women and girls for their murders. I think the way it was reported on and the viewpoint from which it was told and the details that were omitted or glossed over was absolutely shameful. And I think it tells us so much about how we shame and scold and punish female sexuality or beyond that sexual curiosity or sexual liberation or sexual fantasy on a woman's own terms this woman's interest in kink played no part in her brutal and violent death and it feels just so depressing to me that this has to be made clear and explained over and over and over again and it just made me incredibly sad the commentary around this has been so sharp and I think I have learnt so much through this case that I would like to hope it will change the way that the media at least talks about it Mm. Um, and the coverage of it was you know it was on every single paper Mm. both on Saturday and Sunday so I stay hopeful for the fact that this is about education because I do think, as I said, that this is not something that necessarily loads of people know loads about, which means it's something that can be manipulated, mm. um, which is obviously exactly... And, and, and kind of misogynistic agendas can be pinned to it very easily. Totally, totally. And this man, this 27-year-old man, is a man that was known for um, his dangerous and dubious treatment of women. You know, there were women that he'd met on Tinder before who had blocked him because he wouldn't stop harassing them. Mm. So, the, yeah, as soon as you read around it, it becomes clearly so much more complex than the defendant wants you to think that it is um and i think we just have to stay hopeful that like a lot of things it's about education you know Mm. that's how progress happens Mm. on a happier note i couldn't let this episode pass without mentioning your beloved cardigan bees 73 questions with us vogue is it a good one i found it so refreshing so you know how it's normally a really slick rehearsed format in a like incredibly grand setting yeah unless you're liam gallagher i was about to say the liam gallagher one maybe was straddling yeah but cardi b but still he'd have there would have been a performative element there Mm -hmm. you know he'd have 
I still think he'd have very much been controlling like what he wanted to come across. But Cardi B opened the door to her grandmother's apartment. You could see bags of salad and tea towels in the background. She spent most of it sitting on a very modest sofa with her toddler culture fast asleep on her shoulder. And then she answered half the questions whilst lying culture on the sofa, still sleeping. Amazing. Wish my toddler would do that. (laughs) And just stacking cushions around her so she wouldn't fall over. And some of the questions she didn't even really bother to answer. She was always cheerful. Oh. But it was it was literally like the postman had just come round and she was having a chat. There was nothing pre-meditated or controlled about it at all. And when, my favourite bit is when she rings her husband Offset to ask him a question on behalf of Vogue, she ends the call going, I love you bigger than my ass. And my ass is big. <laughs> And then she waggles her tongue at the FaceTime for an extraordinary length of time. And it's both lascivious and totally disgusting. (laughs) And it felt really intrusive that it's being filmed. And the host, who you know is normally so, like, bumptious and gung-ho, said sort of nervously... It's very romantic. Um, I must watch that. I loved it. We talk a lot about authenticity these days, and it's generally pretty hackneyed and impossible when it comes to celebrity media content but this was a funny charming breath of fresh air and as i saw someone asked on twitter where's her us vogue cover speaking of charming lovely modern things i wanted to mention a new sustainable clothes company that my friend nat has set up and we don't talk about fashion on the podcast but the reason i wanted to talk about this is it's goals are so noble in its efforts for sustainability and that's something that I know that a lot of our listeners really really care about and I just love its ethos and I think it might be a really useful service for some of our listeners before party season and it's a really good thing to know about if you're someone who likes fashion um, but feels guilt about consumption and shopping and consumerism and waste so the brand is called On Loan and it's a service where you rent really cool brands. They've got brands such as Kitri, Ghani, Alexa Chung. So they're kind of like cult premium brands that you might not be able to afford. And you pay a rental fee to borrow a certain amount of clothes per month. And you can do that one off or you can do that as a kind of ongoing thing. So prices start at 69 quid to rent up to £500 worth of clothes. And that might not be for everyone's budget. But if you're someone who would normally spend around 60 quid on a few things that you wouldn't keep forever per month. I think this is a really great new way of framing how a wardrobe can work in that you pay just over 10% of the cost of those items to be the owner of them and wear them for about a month. And then instead of keeping them, you enjoy them and you give them back. So it's about the idea is you, you buy experience rather than acquisition, which I just love. And I think increasingly we're going to have to start thinking more and more about as we think about consumption and as we think about the environment. And it also means you get to have an ever-changing wardrobe if you get bored of things or you're a bit of a sartorial commitment phobe. So you can find out more about that at onloan.co. What's in the mailbag this week, doll? This was in response to the short story that we mentioned last week, The Crane Wife, published in the Paris Review in the summer and recommended by Pandora. Pandora's going to read it because I'm a bit snuffly in coffee. It has been 10 days since I packed a bag and walked out of my house, my home and my marriage. I am in so much pain and the guilt is crippling. I have been struggling to vocalise why I left to my friends and family. But since reading The Crane Wife, I understand. 
It chimes so strongly with me that I cannot believe someone else wrote these words. Earlier this year, my husband and I, also birdwatchers, visited a wildlife refuge in Texas. We didn't see cranes, they'd migrated to their breeding grounds. This holiday was the last time I felt truly happy in our marriage. As the weeks passed, I started to question my relationship, my companion. I served him hugs and kisses, I cooked and cleaned, I made our house a home and arranged our entire wedding, even down to choosing my own ring. Romantic proposals were dumb, I told people, but I was always secretly hurt hearing of acts of love by other men. My sister once asked me, what is his love language? How does he show you he loves you? And I couldn't answer. I'm the first to say that I'm independent, a feminist, and that I don't need him to shower me with love, words, gifts. But I feel ashamed that I kidded myself for so long. We were not cranes who mate for life, who form a bond so strong that they dance in delight and shout out to the world when they meet on their breeding grounds. I imagine the first crane to arrive looks to the skies and hopes that their mate will return day after day. But the mate that I chose would return to our home and barely glance from his phone, not ask me how my day was or offer to help with anything, always hoping he would look me in the eyes. Unlike the magnificent crane, my ornithological equivalent feels like a city sparrow. I would wait for crumbs fallen from a table, a smile, an empty offer of help. That was a lovely dinner, darling, and I would be sated. I took what I got, wearing my independence proudly, like filling myself up with a bread roll. I understand now, and I am not ashamed to say that I have needs. When I asked for it from my husband, stop being so needy was what I got. Fast forward ten days into my newly separated life, and I am starting to understand more clearly why I left a husband who loves me, who hasn't cheated, who thought everything was fine. I deserve to be loved, to feel loved. I am so glad you shared this piece. I can stop plucking my feathers now. And when I have healed a bit more, perhaps my feathers will grow, and I don't yet know what colour they will be. I want to read that in the Paris Review as well. What a beautiful writer. I know. And what a beautiful, generous act to be going through that 10 days like to have left that marriage 10 days ago and be going through those thought processes and to share them with us thank you so much that's beautiful piece of writing i know it's slightly undone me we had another email from a listener who wrote in to say that she volunteers for a food bank and wanted to share that something many charity appeals struggle with at christmas is enough donations for teenage boys She says, there are lots of toys, etc. given for younger children, but very little, if anything, for boys over the age of 10 or 11, and it's a real struggle to get a parcel together for them. The sorts of gifts that would be good and are cheap and easy to donate would be hats, scarves and gloves, pyjamas, underwear, wallets, belts, toiletry gift sets such as Lynx or Nivea for men, socks, calculators, watches. She says, I know that sounds expensive, but you can pick them up cheap in Argos or Tesco's for under a tenner. That's really good to know. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for letting us know that. We have two recommendations from our listeners, including an Instagram account called at sendbooks with the O's of the books being zeros. Gemma Janes launched her Instagram-based library last year, which consists of vintage books that she sources from bookshops worldwide. You can buy the vintage books from Gemma and you can also sign up to become a reader, whereby you receive a different book each month. The book comes with a handwritten note and a postcard designed by a selected artist. Gemma has sent out over 1,000 books thus far. I checked out this account and the covers are so great. They remind me of some of the covers that we had on the Hilo tour when we were buying books that weren't necessarily being published a lot now, like How to Improve Your Man in Bed Mm. and... um, how to stay married mm. and, and I, remember I looked at the bell jar our copy of the bell jar that we had as well was just beautiful they're all very like that vintage books yeah I'm 
in my head, that's also how the cover of this is an in joke for anyone that was there. That's also how the cover of the man who could not kill enough might look. <laughs> Dolly and I both love vintage book covers. The only shop we went to in Dublin when we were there for the tour was a vintage bookshop where we ogled old Roald Dahl and Seamus Heaney's. The we best. had so much fun in there, and we still talk about the book covers that we saw in that shop like it was like an amazing night out. But they were incredibly expensive. So the best thing about Sam Books is that they're really affordable. Mm. It's a heavenly way to build up a library. And I think it shows as well that tech does not necessarily destroy publishing it. Yes, it can exactly. boost it in new and creative ways. I love that. And I think that's such a lovely gift idea as well for Christmas coming up. Another listener recommended Mubi.com, M-E-B-I, a platform that's a sort of curated Netflix for European and international cinema. It's co-funded through European Arts Foundations and actively supports independent cinema. I recently mentioned on the high-low that I absolutely love Joanna Hogg's film from this year, The Souvenir, and that is available to watch there. Doll, what have you been enjoying this week? I adored Jane Garvey on How to Fail. Have you listened to it? No, I can't wait to listen to that. I saw that you tweeted. Um, I think I just replied to either her tweet or the how to fail tweet just with like a crown (laughs) she is becoming such a such a hero for parity she is and rightly so and you know the thing about Jane Garvey is she's this broadcasting household name but the way most people know her is in this kind of quite serious quite formal setting of this daily show of women's hour where she's you know I've been terrifying. <laughs> Having been on the show myself, can be quite terrifying. <laughs> what, were you a bit terrified? I was a bit terrified by Yes, because she's got this... Um, I think I told her when we met... When about, we went the paper, on to, about the paper. Yes, because she, when she's reading out her notes, she just tosses each page over her shoulder as she goes. And you said sometimes she does it while holding eye contact with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she's known for, for being this kind of very well informed very formal very probing voice and actually one of the things I've loved about listening to Fortunately is getting to know mm. the person behind that and actually she's just so funny and really down to earth and really insightful and intelligent and the thing that I really love about her which weirdly links to one of my other recommendations is I realised while listening to her interview that there's a particular type of human that I value more than any other, who is someone who knows what to take seriously and what not to take seriously. So there are certain issues that Jane Garvey takes really seriously, and there is a fuck ton she doesn't take seriously at all, one of which is herself. And I think it just makes for the most charming and enjoyable human beings. And she, as Panda said, she's now this kind of amazing uh, representative on the issue of equal pay. And she talks about that BBC pay disparity route so honestly, more honestly than I've ever, ever heard anyone talk about it, about what it was like from the inside, how women rallied together, how she felt let let down by men and kind of allies within the BBC, the solution that she was offered, why she didn't do a tribunal, what those tribunals entail, and specifically and exactly why, in very, very eloquent terms, this is so unacceptable. Did um, it result in her being paid more? And did she talk about why she decided to stay? Yeah. She said she took a pay rise uh, instead of taking it to a tribunal because, and she's really honest, she was like, I was too scared. She'd just come from a tribunal for a colleague and she said, you know, it was a really intimidating thing and time-consuming thing. And she said, you know, I just wasn't really... She used the word brave, I think, which I think is unfair, but she just 
prefer to take the money and but she still is campaigning relentlessly and talking about it so honestly Mm, mm. is brilliant and she also said in so many words she felt the responsibility to be the spokesperson for it because in the in the context of the bbc being a woman and being the voice and stalwart of women's hour she was more unfireable she was relatively safe than other women i do think the bbc to give them some credit I think the BBC is probably the only place where you could be employed and still be actively campaigning against what they're not doing right. And, of course, that's because it's not set up in the way a normal corporation is. Because it's paid for by licence fee payers. So it's necessarily more open and people are perhaps more involved in the workings of it than they would be in a privately owned company. She's also very honest, which is perfect for that podcast format about her failures and one of which which made me laugh so much is that she doesn't think she's a very good listener and she said that she often does interviews and she listens back to women's out every day and she hears herself trying to like get a funny comment in instead of responding to what her interviewee says or picking up on something a little bit too late or not uh asking a probing enough question and how she kind of chastises herself for that and how that's a kind of lifelong lesson as a broadcaster and just as a conversationalist. And I just loved her. I found her honesty about that just so refreshing uh, because it is a real skill to do that and to do that really well and to communicate someone's story clearly and fairly while also being inquisitive. Um, And the other thing she talks about really honestly and very movingly is uh, her three miscarriages and uh, I sent it to people who I know and love who are going through that or have been through that because the thing that she talks about, which lots of women I know um, and and partners of women I know who've been through this have said, is that there's this assumption that once you have a viable pregnancy or once you have a baby, that the trauma or the loss or the pain of miscarriage disappears or is somehow fixed. And it's not and it's such a unique and and I think quite isolating grief to go through and I think it's something that we just have still no support system or language for or ritual for really or or mourning ritual for and Jay and Garvey just speaks um, really openly about the reverberations of those traumas for the rest of her life really. When I hear people talking about um how the trauma of miscarriage is not cured, quote-unquote, or solved Mm. by having another baby. It always reminds me of my parents' experience um, because they had a daughter before me that died when she was a baby and then they had me. And I remember when I was little and being a brat, I would occasionally say, well, you never wanted me anyway. Mm. You know, I I was just a replacement. And I remember my dad once said you're the only baby we've ever planned. And I asked my mum more about that, and she said, often people think that when a child dies, you have another child um, as a replacement, Mm. you know, as a, quite literally to replicate what you've lost. She said, we had a child not to replace Daisy, because nothing can replace Daisy, and you're two completely different people, but because we felt like our family was incomplete, and we didn't want the last child that we had to be one that we were mourning we want you know we wanted Daisy to exist in her own space and you Mm. to exist in your own space Mm. and that's obviously a cot death is um 
it's different to miscarriage um you know nothing is the same with these experiences but I think it's quite interesting how I agree with you that with babies you kind of feel like they're all the same because they're all small and squeaky or they're all inside or whatever or that a woman is just like trying to fulfill some sort of desire of motherhood and it's just so much more that that daisy left a void so they have to fill that void but i think that those things can coexist so that Mm. that trauma and that loss can coexist next to a feeling of completeness or incompleteness yes um incidentally if anyone has thank god cot death is down so much in the last 30 years it's down by like 90 percent mainly because of two massive things which is that they realize that women shouldn't smoke when they're pregnant and the baby shouldn't sleep on their stomach. Mm. But it um, still does affect parents. And there's a brilliant um, charity out there called the Lullaby Trust, which I've spoken about before. I did a reading at their Christmas service last year, and Adam Kay did one as well. Okay. He's done a lot for the Lullaby Trust, um, as have lots of other wonderful people. And it's a really small charity, but my mum spoke to someone from the Lullaby Trust every single day for a year. So okay. if you have gone through... Um, sudden infant death syndrome or you uh have a friend who has i really recommend them as a trust anyway gone off on a bit of a non-sector there but it's a nice place to talk about no i i I don't think it's non-sector at all because i think what obviously elizabeth the interviewer has spoken very very openly as well and very bravely about her struggles with fertility and her miscarriage and you just feel this real sense of relief and calm and solace when you hear women given the space and the time and the safety to talk about these things so I I think the more conversations that we can have to um, normalise and sympathise and understand this experience that's very unique and, and yet very very common the better. I can't recommend the episode enough and the clip that I wanted to insert was her speaking on equal pay. Women and men value women and men very differently. Men really rate other men and a lot of women at the top also rate men really, really highly without actually even realising that they're doing it. And there's a streak of that in me as well. I've really had to have a word with myself about the way I think about the way things work. And there are subtler points here as well. Claudia Winkleman is, I think, the BBC's highest paid woman. I think she has a first-class degree from Cambridge. But she doesn't earn her money for her almighty brain. She earns her money by being fantastically entertaining and very Claudia Winkleman on Strictly. But that isn't like the way we value men at the very top. It's troubling, and there are questions for all of us here. There really are, including lots and lots of women. I returned to a poem that I read a few years ago this week that uh, I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned to you before that I think will cheer your spirits. And I think it's a ode to good parenting and loving parents, which maybe you don't hear enough about because all us writers do is complain um, about how much they mess up. (laughs) So this is a poem by Adrian Mitchell and it's a play on the very famous Philip Larkin poem, This Be The Verse. They tuck you up, your mum and dad. They read you Peter Rabbit too. They give you all the treats they had and add some extra just for you. They were tucked up when they were small. Pink perfume, blue tobacco smoke. By those whose kiss healed any fall, whose laughter doubled any joke. Man hands on happiness to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. So love your parents all you can 
and have some cheerful kids yourself. I love that and um, I am extremely fortunate for that to be much more in line. To have been more tucked up than fucked up. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) I love that. I wonder if I can frame it and put it on a cushion. (laughs) Frame it and put on a cushion. God, even for you that sounds a bit OTT, doesn't it? (laughs) I also wanted to talk again and I know I'm like a bloody dog with a bone with this series but I wanted to talk about Dolly Parton's America because... This is your last... Okay. No more Rod or Dolly for 2019. that's, That's totally fine. The last episode of Dolly Parton's America I think is one of the most perfect podcast episodes I've ever listened to and it's about the song Jolene. And it's. that's her most famous? No, 9 till 5. 9 no. to 5. 9 to 5 is in the episode before, actually, and it's talking about how she is associated with feminism. It's such a good series. So, for anyone who doesn't know, it's focusing on Dolly Parton, Dolly Parton's music, the history of Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton was a woman, a philanthropist, uh, with lots of interviews with Dolly Parton. But it's that's the kind of jumping off point, and really. It's an investigation into the state of America and the history of America and the psychology and the politics and the anthropology of America and the soundscaping of it and the journalism of it and the narrative of it is just so, so well done. The thing that's most fascinating about it is they talk about the song Jolene as a kind of very radical song about sisterhood which might sound strange because the song Jolene is a narrator a female narrator pleading to another woman begging her not to steal her husband but in the podcast they talk about how in country music a woman talking directly to another woman about not stealing her man or asking her not to sleep with her man is quite a trope and it's normally quite aggressive and quite misogynistic they play clips of women singing about um, other women being white trash or there's a famous one with the lyrics of which are get out of my way if you don't want to go to fist city whereas Jolene is a plea and it's a kind of gentle and loving plea uh, in which the narrator lists all the reasons as to why she understands why her husband might fall in love with Jolene, but kind of from woman to woman asking her to not steal her husband. And it's a kind of complicated strain of feminism to get your head around, I understand. But when they talk about it in context with the rest of those other songs and the tradition of woman to woman narrator in country music, you do realise it's quite a gentle and compassionate song. And you won't listen to Jolene in the same way again. They also go into the musicality of it, which is obviously so geeky and I fucking love, about how Dolly used the same scale that was used in Gregorian chants, which is why it has this really kind of haunting feel. And the fact that the guitar riff is so um, repetitive and loopy that it feels like she's kind of circling and pacing the room, obsessing over her husband's potential infidelity. And how that kind of all synthesises to make this really kind of powerful, emotive song. And then there's this other interesting bit where they talk about how the song can be read as a as a story of homoeroticism. About how the narrator is in love with Jolene. And they use that as a way to explore how Dolly Parton's music... Um, has affected and been important to the LGBT community. And interestingly said, in the South, there is the highest proportion of LGBT residents than in any other part of America, which I just found so unexpected. And they talked to a gay country performer about 
why Dolly Parton's music is so important to the gay community and how there's this like really interesting thing that happens with Dolly Parton's music and with lots of really powerful art where there's the story of the creator um the story of the person coming to it as a reader or consumer and then there's this like third space that develops um which is like a communal space between Mm. both and they talk about the psychology of that and it's just it's just really fascinating and the last five minutes of it takes the most unexpected term in terms of looking at that third space and how what music can become to people and it's the most unexpected story about the song Jolene and how it's related to a story in the apartheid and it's no exaggeration to say that I was walking along Camden Road and I was listening to it and their hairs stood on end um, when I heard that last five minutes and it will just take your breath away and also the last minute of the episode is the best remix of Jolene so I think I've waxed lyrical about that enough everyone must listen to it and I'd like to insert a clip here of Dolly talking about her LGBT audience. God made us as we are. Who we are is who we are. Yeah. Whether you're gay, whether you're straight, whether you're black, white, green, or alien gray, we are who we are. I would just bow out if I was not allowed to be me. I would just say, well, if you can't deal with it, I can't deal with you not dealing with it. And I hate those Christians that are so judgmental when there are so many, if you're just going to pick out certain words, certain things from the Bible, and they forget about to judge not, lest you be judged, and it's up to him to decide, you know, what's right or what's wrong. And he made us all. And if we're different, well, that's fine. We're still his. What have you been enjoying, Panda? I've got a podcast for you, actually. Oh, tell me. Broken. Jeffrey Epstein, a six-part podcast hosted by the New Yorker's Ariel Levy. There are a fair few podcasts, perhaps unsurprisingly, about Epstein at the moment. This was one I'd seen reviewed and recommended in quite a few different outlets. Six parts, all about half an hour each episode. Very, very tight, quite musical, and intersperses lots of clips from the people involved in the way that Serial does. Mm. I'd say that narratively, it's really similar to Serial. So if you enjoy the way that, that unfurled, mm-hmm. then I think you'll really enjoy um, the way that Broken is done. My favourite episode is episode two about Ghislaine Maxwell as she's such a shadowy figure and no one's got any idea into the extent of her involvement. And I think people are quite baffled that she still hasn't been called upon mm. at any point or they can't find her they can't or, find her um there was like one spotting of her in like a sort of burger restaurant outside in la i think wasn't there a couple of months ago it's all anyway the whole thing's really odd um and she's got a pretty interesting backstory of her own her father robert maxwell uh was a massive fraudster mm. um to the tune of about 500 million out of the pension accounts of his of his company. And he fell off his yacht in like the middle of the night in 1991. And there was all sorts of conspiracy theories about that. But for a voice that's been so absent, it was really striking to hear these clips of her chattering. Um, they'd found interviews with her when she'd been doing various charity work or 
you know, things like that. So you really get her voice. And they also um, had some facts about her and her involvement that I hadn't read about. Like, there was a reporter who's been covering the story for the Daily Mail in the US. And he was saying, if you look at her flight records, there is no way that someone could be flying as much as she was with Epstein unless they were trafficking girls. Mm. What He says, what reason did she have to be in the air all the time? Mm. And there's just so many other interesting snippets. And I think, I think what's most interesting is that we're in, we're in that slightly, I know that I can feel a bit scared about talking about her involvement or talking about women's involvement when there are men that have perpetrated sexual crimes because you don't want it to ever sound like you think that what they've done is as bad. But what is said very directly on this podcast is that there is absolutely no way he would have managed to... God, achieve is such a horrible word to use, but essentially achieve what he did without her help. Mm-hmm. And that she was an integral role mm-hmm. because she was that feminine presence that um, made them feel like everything was going to be okay. And it so clearly was going to be the opposite. And that what has been insinuated is that there is no way that she not only didn't know, but that she totally and knowingly facilitated this. So I really recommend that podcast for drilling down and unpicking more than what the newspapers currently are because obviously the newspapers are covering the news as it unfolds it's not necessarily the backstory and the kind of cultural weight of uh this woman you know this kind of very beautiful british socialite who just appeared in new york in the 90s and um and how much new york really embraces and enjoys Um, a very beautiful woman with a shady past or a shady backstory in the way that she wouldn't have been able to pull off in London. Gear change. I am also recommending Fort Sama, which is a documentary I'd been wanting to watch for some time. It was at the cinema and then came to Channel 4 immediately afterwards, which I was so excited about. I was literally tweeting Channel 4 asking when it was um, going to arrive because I get very uncomfortable in the cinema at the moment, so I sadly couldn't see it there. And it is one of the most harrowing and powerful things I have ever seen. Both my husband and I were sobbing watching it, so I do have to warn that at times it is very, very hard to watch. But I really think that everyone should watch it. Um, I think it closes what someone referred to as an empathy gap with war. Um, This feeling that you can be fatigued by bad news and the fact that there's a lot of different wars happening across the world and it can be hard to keep up with what's going on where. And this documentary completely humanises it. Forsama was filmed over five years from 2011 as the peaceful protest against President Bashar al-Assad began in 2011. And some of you may remember that at the beginning... People thought actually he was going to be a breath. Assad was going to be a breath of fresh air, and his wife Asma was actually profiled in. I mean, they will never be allowed to forget this. Um, U.S. Vogue actually profiled her, and the really? headline was "Rose in the Desert," and this was shortly before they turned out to be catastrophically brutal, terrible leaders. But at the beginning, in, in 2011, it was just starting with these peaceful protests. And it goes through to the uh, Arab Spring and to the maker of the documentary's escape in 2016. The 
maker of the documentary is a young woman who became a citizen journalist for Channel 4 called um, Ward Al-Khatib and her husband Hamza. And Sama, the titular Sama, is her baby who is born during this documentary. So the documentary starts. It's, in, it's incredible. It's compiled from 500... I've read two different reports. Some say 300 hours of raw footage, some say 500. But either way, it took two years for her and her co-producer to go through it in the UK in order to make it. But she basically filmed constantly. And so at the beginning, Hamza, who becomes her husband, is just her friend. And then during um, one operation on a... Uh, child uh ward starts crying while she's filming it and hamza says you, you know get out you can't cry here you can't cry here and then he comes to find her later and he says don't you understand that the reason why i can't see you cry is i'm in love with you and so then they get married and then they have sama and the film begins with her singing to sama this beautiful baby who i'd say she's between about three and six months old and she's just crooning to her and then you hear the shells, these massive shells, dum, dum. And she just says really calmly, someone takes armor, someone takes armor. And then she's racing through the hospital and there is, you know, smoke coming in and they all go down to this sort of bunker. And it then transpires that Ward and Hamza are living in the hospital in Aleppo. There are nine hospitals in Aleppo. Eight of them have been destroyed in the war. And this is the only one left going. And her husband, Hamza, is the manager of the hospital. And so that they can see more people, they move in. They move into a room and that is their home for a... I don't know the specific period of time, but it looks like it could be a year, possibly more. Um, And there is a tight core unit of these hospital workers. And I don't know how. I don't know how the lights are still going. I don't know who's paying them. I don't know how it's still going. But they managed to keep this hospital going to the extent where they do 890 operations in 20 days. They see 300 patients a day. They have no water, so there's no way to mop up the blood. Um, when there's a shell and they have to go down to their sort of underground bunker, whatever whatever it's, it is, they pump the ventilators by hand. What's really devastating about this documentary as, uh, is that children play a very prominent role. And I think that's why it's really harrowing to watch but as I said I do feel like it's so important um and a lot of the casualties of war are children and that's something that I think that you see the doctors struggle the most with and there's this really beautiful moment where um Ward says you know Sama will you will you blame me for giving birth to you you know will you blame me for leaving when they have to leave um Syria and there is also a point where Hamza says you have to abandon Sama because we're not going to make it and she has a better chance of surviving if she doesn't know that we are her parents and it's also incredible to see war through children through children's eyes Mm. um there's a moment where a toddler wipes her mother's eyes and says Aleppo is gone almost you know quite cheerfully Mm. And I think actually that that is something that I haven't seen and that's what makes this documentary so unique is is the presence of children as something devastating but as also something um, uplifting and magical and um, completely human. And there are these moments of absolute levity as they live through it. Something we were talking to Louise Callahan recently. As at times they live through just the mundanity mm. of war and at one point, one of Ward's friends, um, her husband, so during the siege, uh, there's no 
vegetables there's no fruit you know they're just living off rice anyway he finds a persimmon she says to him god when war is over all i want is a persimmon and he comes in with this persimmon and she just loses it she's singing and she's dancing and she's crowing and he's just sitting on the sofa being like i only had to get her a persimmon um and it was just this incredible moment because he's very uh laissez fair about it but she knows what he how hard he must have had mm. to search for this mm. he says you know you look after that person and it's not ripe yet wait till it's perfectly ripe and she's just holding it to her chest singing about it warden hamza turned out to play really vital roles in the conflict um ward uploaded several videos to youtube which got millions of hits and hamza was speaking regularly to news outlets that obviously got back to um Assad's regime and one day he gets a call from the UN who says they will spare you but you have to leave you have to go into exile and that is completely devastating for them I've read a few interviews with Ward where people say you know were you relieved to leave and she says I didn't want to leave I don't want to leave for a second Mm. I I want to go back Um, and actually when her second daughter is born she's heavily pregnant with her second daughter and when her second daughter is born um, she says I can smell Aleppo on her skin Um, she speaks really poetically and beautifully Um, and they have to go to exile and they now live in London but Mm. obviously hope to return to Syria but um, I can't emphasise what an impact this documentary makes it's not the only brilliant documentary about Syria I've been recommended some other brilliant ones um, including this is one that has absolutely been on my list since I was lucky enough to meet the producer Joanna Natasagura last year but there's one called White Helmets which won an Oscar in 2016 and another documentary actually that Joanna's made that's been widely acclaimed is called Evelyn which came out this year and it's about male suicide which is the biggest killer of young men so I intend to watch um, both of those all of those documentaries will be in the show notes And my last recommendation, also featuring lots of uh, children, but um, in a joyful way, although that is not to undermine what motherhood is like, particularly when you have five children like Clover Stroud. (laughs) But I have been reading a proof copy of her new book, My Wild and Sleepless Nights, A Mother's Story. And that comes out in, I think, February of next year. Again, I'm giving you a heads up on the pre-order because we'll be on maternity leave. So I'm not doing it to annoy you because you can't buy it now. I'm doing it because otherwise you wouldn't get to hear about it in February when it comes out. And Clover... I'd say Clover's expertise is writing about um, family life in a way that feels um, new and entirely familiar. And it is, this word is so overused, but the way she writes about it is really raw. Mm. Um, and it's, and she it's wild. Really, it really is wild and raw. Yeah. And her, her first memoir, um, The Wild Other, is one of my favourite memoirs of all time. For that very reason, it's just, it's just raw and unflinching and bold. And actually, I just realised that this has got wild in the title as well. So it's yeah. obviously, it is her, um, it's her USP, which yeah. makes that sound really cynical. And it's not, it's just like, that. that's clearly the only way she can be. It's the only way she can write. And um, it's written over the course of a year as she becomes pregnant and then gives birth um, to her fifth baby, Lester. And I think we leave them when Lester's about a year old. And it's about how she yearns to be um, a mother again and she wanted this baby and she wants and needs the chaos of an enormous family but still how to hold on to not just who you were before but who you are as a mother to your other children 
basically how to keep everyone happy, including yourself during that slightly sort of mad early time. And there are a couple of bits that I just wanted to pick up on that I thought were um, particularly lovely and worth um, bookmarking. She rings her ex-husband's mother, who she's still very close to, which I also think is just lovely, Mm. 16 years on from breaking up with Mm. the... um, her son and because she used to be a midwife and she says you know I I can't stop him crying and she knows that baby's crying my god she's been through it but in that moment it feels like you know nothing is ever going to be better again and she says why does he keep on crying and her ex-mother-in-law says he's a baby it's his way of existing it's his way of being sometimes I think babies cry just to feel themselves to feel the outside edges of themselves and I love that as a description for crying or, or just feeling to feel our outside edges yeah it's the only way that they can express themselves really but even in grown-ups you know if you're feeling kind of formless and um just completely un shaped and unsure of who you are I love the idea of going through a powerful emotion to find your outside edges I think that's a really beautiful metaphor Um, and then this is an example of how Clover talks about motherhood which is I think very different to um, the ways that you see motherhood talked about in that it's either this um, adorable social media-y way or it's this um, motherhood ruined my life way I Mm. think we've got these two quite polarised narratives Mm. in the media at the moment and she fuses all of them together really to find this new place the intensity of the way I feel petrifies me sometimes I think it comes from the wild violence and energy of labour my mother love is not soft or gentle it isn't pastel coloured or decorated with bunnies and chicks like the mother love you see in adverts for nappies or buggies it's a wild love it thrashes and roars it's a massive jagged emotion coursing through my blood and covering my skin and seeping into my bone marrow it's a deep love but there's fear there too Becoming a mother has unleashed this feeling of intense new love, but it's also unleashed the possibility of a loss so great I don't know how my body could contain it. My love for Lester and for all my children hurts me, like a bruise under a nail, protected on the surface by the hardness of life, but actually bleeding underneath. She's really put into words actually how I feel as a mother is that it is this like intense, almost like sickening love, but it is also an absolute fear. Because you don't know how you would ever live without it. And I think she makes this really great point when she's talking with a friend towards the end of the book. That what antenatal classes should do, and I've got to be honest, I was not a mad fan of my antenatal classes. What antenatal classes should do is focus less on like, are you eating vegetables? And more on the emotional side of motherhood and how you might feel like you're being kind of reconfigured and maybe some like wonderful reading or films to help you feel like you're not so alone in that kind of necessary like reorientation of your identity and yeah. I think that'd be so much more useful yeah. than god knows what seven hours was filled with my international classes but I came away with the, the sum of no useful information whatsoever <laughs> so um yeah I really really recommend that that's my wild and sleepless nights a mother story by Clover Strad and that will all be in the show notes support for the high low comes from sniff Sniff is a new mail order service that introduces you to fragrances based on what you already like every month. Every month they send you an 8ml bottle of fragrance with the first month coming in a chic matte cover. Sniff has six different collections for women, men and unisex. My fragrances are from the female classics range. Pandora's meanwhile are from the avant-garde. She prefers unisex fragrances. You can find out what your collection would be by taking Sniff's quick and easy scent quiz on the website. 
Sniff have all the big names, but they also really want to diversify your fragrance so that younger, lesser-known brands get a chance to land upon your skin. They also believe in a fragrance wardrobe, which is a rather lovely term. And you know what? Having always been a fragrance loyalist, I'm coming around to it. Sniff subscription starts at £14 a month. This is a really good Christmas present, incidentally, given that a full bottle of perfume often costs an eye-watering 70 quid. And this way you get to try loads and also reduces the risk factor of trying a new scent. I can't even imagine how many almost completely full bottles of scent there are on people's shelves due to unwanted Christmas presents. Also, the size is brilliant. I can't ever take my scent in my hand luggage as it's too many millilitres. So this eight millilitre bottle is ideal. And I actually took it on a flight that Dolly and I took to Glasgow during the high-low tour. She did. She was scrambling around with her little plastic sack. Visit sniff.co.uk, spelled S-N-I-P-H. And hurry, because there is a 25% discount for the high-low listeners for your first month as a subscriber. Use high-low in the discount box. Thank you very much to Sniff. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was announced this week that the prom queen of lacy undercrackers, Victoria's Secret, are cancelling their annual catwalk show. A spectacle that began in 1995 is filmed for global viewership and costs £12 million to make for the foreseeable future due to shifting strategy, quote-unquote, a.k.a. it was considered out of touch and out of date. Dolly, are you surprised? I'm not surprised that they've finally woken up to how incredibly unmodern it is, both aesthetically and Politically, I suppose. But I'm surprised that something so iconic and I imagine lucrative has been pulled. Is that why you've turned up wearing a pair of feathery angel wings today? (laughs) I'm in In mourning. (laughs) I am surprised because, as you say, of the brand impact of the event and the fact that even at its lowest figures last year, the show was still watched by over 3 million people in the US alone. And I'm also not surprised because the brand has not fared well in the, and I hate this phrase, but, uh, you know, it, serves a purpose I suppose in the Me Too era or the post Me Too era not just because it's angels a trussed up in lacy lingerie but because the former chief marketing officer Ed Razick who auditioned the angels each year along with a bunch of women and they auditioned in their underwear and would post pictures of them hugging him when he awarded them with a catwalk spot and on his birthday they would always post pictures of them hugging him he was always a fully dressed man in his 50s and they were always in bikinis so whilst I'm not suggesting any lines were crossed, it did seem like part of the contract was to publicly pledge adoration Mm. to Ed Razek, which was quite weird. And he also made a series of misguided comments last year, and I think this was the the beginning of the end for him, like saying that he wouldn't cast transgender models or plus-size models because Victoria's Secret was aspirational. He resigned in August, and the brand cast its first transgender model, Valentina Sampaio, almost immediately. But this desperate PR pivot, and I'm sorry, but I think that's quite a lot of the PR pivot about 
that yeah. uh, was not enough. Victoria's Secret have lost, I think, hundreds of millions this quarter. And despite that 7% drop in sales this quarter, it still is the leading lingerie brand in the US. I obviously think those comments are disgusting, but I've never been someone vehemently against the whole Victoria's Secret branding because I just think there's no one correct way of, of expressing or you know enjoying female sexuality. It just felt to me a bit grim that this was the only way it was ever expressed or celebrated it seemed like that represents such a like traditional ubiquitous model for femininity that i just think everyone's sick of and i just think more than anything it just feels very retro it's really interesting to watch the arc of victoria's secret um and to actually watch the arc of it kind of in my own life as well i went to new york on my own when i was 19 and one of the places I was most excited to visit was the store in New York which had been just to me this kind of symbol of sort of massive American culture I've always been obsessed with American culture ever since I was tiny I had I don't know why yearned to experience this sort of mass branded life I suppose that it, it signaled to me and anyway I was very excited to go to the store bought lots of their knickers i was incredibly excited to attend the show as a fashion journalist when it came to london in 2014 it was this extraordinary camp spectacle and this feels embarrassing to admit now but it really did feel like you've got a golden ticket you know journalists were emailing each other being like are you going to the victoria's secret show really and it was this specific type of glamour i suppose and afterwards there was a party and the victoria's secret models were caged off literally like animals like in their own little um, cordoned off areas with these sofas while everyone else prowled around the party you weren't allowed to talk to the models you weren't allowed to go into their cordoned off areas and they stayed in their areas in these in these tiny dresses I'm loving this like potted personal history of Pandora and Victoria's Secret <laughs> I mean it ends there there's not much more than that but almost every major model from Cara Delevingne to Bella Hadid to Giselle has modelled for Victoria's Secret the archive of pictures of the Victoria's Secret show, particularly from the early noughties, is actually kind of incredible. Um, being a Victoria's Secret angel, even cast in the show, was a number one ambition until very recently for almost every slightly commercial model. Carly Kloss said that she retired from Victoria's Secret last year. I think she used to be an angel because it didn't fit with her feminism anymore. But right up until this news was announced, you know, there were still very, very big successful models working with them. And the whole thing was this huge pop culture spectacle from the paparazzi coverage of what the models wore to their auditions. I mean, there are about 20 articles every year when they do their auditions of models in skinny jeans and crop tees, like strolling into the building. There are videos shared on YouTube of the moment that the models were told that they had been chosen. And every inch of the process was shared volubly and vociferously on social media. I wonder how much of that and how well people responded to that is because it's such a reaction against traditional culture of supermodels, which was they were elusive and voiceless. Yeah, that's a really good point. There was definitely a perceived joy to be found to being part of that family, at least. Yeah. You know, that's what it looked like from the outside. Yeah, and I think we're, just, we're now in a time where, which is quite new for the modelling industry, where their personalities um, and their their kind of hobbies and who they are as people and activists and their personal lives themselves are documented on public platforms and maybe that that most dramatic swing was first encapsulated with the Victoria's Secret show culture and it must have as you said felt like new and exciting and like they suddenly were kind of human and more accessible 
it's a really common thought process to say that lingerie models must be exploited and sexualized against their will and I can see that and I'm not arguing against that as a theory that is probably very applicable in lots of circumstances and of course I think if you look at it through the lens of choice feminism which is the kind of feminism that's criticized a lot in a individualistic society it's the idea that you're making a choice and then the response to that is you are making a choice but that choice is framed within and informed by the highly sexualized context through which women are prized and valued in a patriarchal Mm. society Mm. so there is of course that there's that complication because i don't think you can tell a woman that felt empowered by being a Victoria's Secret model that she's disempowered but equally how do you how do you resist and ignore the context with which that choice was made I think you've put it perfectly yeah but a lot of Victoria's Secret angels and this is another thing we have to consider that equality like economics plays a massive part of equality when people say it's not about money yes it is because <laughs> when women are paid the same as men like money is power it mm. is it is there's a lot of it which is like that basic yes social rights and social reform but economy and a lot of victoria's secret angels found financial security for life when they were given those wings if you if you became an angel you'd be on a multi-million pound contract that's why so many of these models desperately mm. wanted that and economics is really interesting in the modelling industry as well. There are lots of horrible stories about Terry Richardson and, you know, tons of other photographers like that. But modelling is the only industry where women are paid more than men. Mm. So there's, I think there's quite a lot of interesting conversations to be had around it. And just to clarify as well, should anyone be interested in the minutiae of this, there were 12 angels a year um, and they were the they were on like the big dog money and they yeah. were literally flying around the world shooting swimwear campaigns or pajama mm. campaigns all year long it was a full-time job but then there are a bunch of other models who were cast in the show um so the angels are sort of like the disciples <laughs> everyone else spreading the word spreading of the glittery word. acrylic crotches <laughs> um, i think that's an important point that you make and i also like you believe that there there really is nothing shameful or embarrassing or even shallow about a woman making money from the way she looks it's certainly a more precarious way of making a living as the general kind of concepts and understanding and constructs of 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 attractiveness even in 2019 is still so tied up with such specific things which not only put a lot of pressure on a person but also are impossible to sustain for life but I know women very closely who've carved out a large portion of their career and finances from their physical appearance and they're very very happy with that decision and very very proud of their work i think as well whenever you talk about um models it becomes in a way that's quite interesting to me that that is an identifier that subsumes their entire social identity so all they are is a model therefore they must be stupid self-obsessed anti-feminist you know sexualized blah 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 like they can't be more than one thing I think what's also interesting is that quite a lot of the articles I've read about the sort of explosion, you know, the rise and fall of Victoria's Secret, is that people have said, well, it no longer represented what women want. It was anti-feminist. And so they just stopped shopping there. And I think the shifting plates of feminism has a huge impact on the way people shop. But, and I'm afraid I think this is more relevant often in the way that people shop, I also think that it's because the choice in the underwear market has become so much more varied in sizing, which was like incredibly narrow at Victoria's Secret, fabric and style with tons of lingerie startups now diversifying the market so that your choices are not only M&S or VS. Mm. I've mentioned them before, but a brand that makes me 
genuinely rejoice about what the future of sort of branded female beauty might look like is a New Zealand based underwear brand called Lonely. The underwear, I should say, as a side note, is my favourite underwear and I wear the bras every single day. And this is not even a spawny slot. No, I'm obsessed with Lonely underwear. But the thing that I love most about the brand is the first time that I went onto their website, I truly had this feeling of looking into a different sort of future and it made me so happy thinking about young women or in a parallel life me age 14 had I been existing age 14 in 2019 and buying bras for the first time uh you know imagining myself being confronted my young self being confronted with these images they use a beautiful and diverse range of models of all different sizes ages body types ethnicities looks some of the models are more boyish some are more androgynous some are more traditionally feminine there's you know lots of a woman's body that's very visible in the pictures there's hair there's stretch marks there's scars there's dimples um and it's quite low-key there's not a lot of makeup or styling and you can just really see the kind of close-up humanity of a female body and it's just sexy as fuck and it's absolute inarguable proof that reality sells reality can sell and that reality is gorgeous and commercial and perfect for me that's like evidence that there is another way of representing the female aesthetic almost seems quite weird now doesn't it that lingerie models were like very sexy in a way that would appeal to a man when actually it was women buying the like thing that probably makes yeah. them feel most self-conscious why would you want to see this completely impossible ideal there are lonely is um gorgeous and by the way particularly good for postpartum they do really good maternity bras but there are so many great underwear brands out there one that's really popular in the states is called airy i think it's a-e-r-i-e we have been sponsored before by an underwear brand we love called stripe and stare yeah dolly for the purposes of this podcast only where's your underwear from today i'm wearing stripe and stare knickers very nice <laughs> and a lonely bra so i'm very on brand i'm practicing what i preach i think another thing that we have to consider because i see this being done quite a lot at the moment and it worries me because it feels feels like everything has to have this um very dramatic right on reasoning rather than it just being something that women felt like doing but i think that at the moment what we're saying is that it has become quite convenient or it's become kind of a political signposting to garnish your consumer choices with an ethical bent when actually sometimes it's more of a post rationalization process so for example the idea that women are not shopping at victoria's secret because they are too feminist for it rather than them just not feeling you know like the underwear fits them that well which i think is as important and i think it's okay to want to buy underwear that fits you well rather than buy underwear that signals to the world that you are the world's best feminist Mm. for example you see it with sustainability i think a lot like the brand reformation I think a lot of the way it's written about the success of it now is that women are buying it because it's sustainable. I think that a lot of the time, first and foremost, women are buying it because it's millennial catnip mm. and it's, you know, exactly what women, a lot of women want to be wearing right now. And I think that's the thing with a lot of Victoria's Secret. I, I think the massive dive in sales is because the underwear often just isn't that nice Mm. isn't that comfy i find lacy knickers really scratchy Mm. and i remember seeing a lime green i remember this so clearly seeing a lime green lace underwear set being advertised on a giant billboard outside westfield in january this year for valentine's day and i actually just shook my head sadly (laughs) i 
felt sorry for them. I was like, God, you've got it so wrong. I can't think of a single woman that wants to wear a lime green lacy underwear set this Valentine's Day. And, you know, tons of consumer brands know this as well. Direct consumer brands have come and shaken up the marketplace. Mm. All those brands that we're talking about. The catwalk show felt, you know, increasingly out of touch. A fleet of models who were all very thin and very similar looking. You know, I think that's really valid and may well have been the primary motivator and a lot of women not shopping there. But then I'm not sure that a lot of these women who hated that show would have shopped there in the first place, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And as we keep saying, I think it transcends anything political for a lot of women. It's just boring and outdated. Yeah. And the thing that's often missed in conversations about diversity... I think is that diversity by its very definition is just more interesting for everyone. It makes for more exciting, relevant content, whether that's stories or images, depending on what you're talking about. And if you put the photos of the lonely girls or that kind of fresh new brand of that ilk up against those Victoria's Secret campaigns, it just shows up how one note it is on every single level. And beyond politics, I just think aesthetically and soulfully and practically that just won't appeal to a lot of women anymore i mean victoria's secret really fought and failed at body diversification we've seen this shift thanks to wellness into talking about bodies being not thin but strong and Mm. toned and the victoria's secret models will go out of their way to post videos and do interviews about their workout routines before the show but a lot of it just felt like rhetoric it's symbolic of the euphemistic language in diet culture right now you know we don't diet we get healthy people are dieting as much as they ever have they're just Mm. doing it under the guise of health or strength and you don't necessarily see an enforced change in bodies like the victoria's secret bodies now the strong healthy bodies of 2019 look exactly the same as the bodies that weren't talking about being strong and healthy in 2001 Mm. my best friend the dietitian rosie saunt um said something that i thought was really interesting to me recently um when i was writing uh, something similar And she said, when it comes to wellness, we often use the word healthy to mean thin. And it has become a way of talking about women's bodies with it sort of aligning more with like feminist and wellness discourse. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the bodies themselves were changing. Mm. So the Victoria's Secret models may have spoken differently about their bodies to the models in the past, but their bodies look identical to those on the catwalk 25 years ago. I mean, you can Google image it if you don't believe me. Yeah, and I remember reading an interview with all the Victoria's Secret angels, which was about their sort of top tips for getting into shape for the show. And it made for incredibly uncomfortable reading. I can't remember which one of them said it, but I always remember one of them said she only consumed liquids for five days and worked out for three hours a day before the show. There was one by Adriana Lima. I think it was Adriana Lima. Whose workout routine was like absolutely... And also this is a woman in her... I think she might be late 30s now. She's been a model for a really, really long time. Mm. She is, interestingly, my husband's dream woman. And for anyone that's seen a picture of Adriana Lima, we could not look more unalike if we tried. So that bodes well. Adriana Lima is, that's like the most universal male crush, I think. I remember when I was younger, everyone went wild for Adriana Lima. She's a very, very beautiful woman. She's as dark and sultry as I am, (laughs) pale and insipid. (laughs) She's very, very gorgeous, but I do remember reading that interview. It was crazy. Because also, as someone who has suffered from an eating disorder before this is not i'm not saying she has an eating disorder but i think women which is sadly this is a lot of women who have struggled with with exercise and eating and control issues or dis- dysfunction of some kind obsession of some kind of that sort it's almost like an invisible ink that you can see 
everywhere. And I did remember reading it and it did uh, just make me feel a bit anxious because it just felt obsessive or dysfunctional, repackaged with, as you said, this kind of carapace of it being health-related or empowering. I'd love to know how much of it's galvanising and how much of it's just completely stultifying because I look, you just look at that and just feel... Completely shit about yourself. Anyway, the whole strong, not thin thing became part of Victoria's PR strategy. But this pivot into kind of empowered mainstream feminism felt really laboured. And I remember about three years ago, one beauty editor telling me that when she interviewed the models behind the scenes before the show, several of them had cue cards with like your go to mottos written on them at the top in capitals. And then it was bullet points like you are empowered, you are feminist, you support women, you are strong, etc, etc. I mean, you... A, some of those models, English wasn't their first language, okay? But, I mean, you can't blame them for trying, I suppose. That feels very cynical to me. (laughs) That feels very cynical. (laughs) How I would round up this whole thing is that I think it just became naff. I I think it was like a confluence of lots of different things. And I don't think the women who want to wear matching lacy underwear should be made to feel ashamed. No. I think actually sometimes wearing like matching really sexy underwear can feel amazing. Just yeah, but don't buy it from Victoria's Secret. I also just have very sensitive skin. <laughs> but we swing, at the moment I do think we swing from one side to the other very quickly in terms of cultural discourse. You know, that women who want to work out every day should somehow be made to feel unfeminist. Like, I don't dislike seeing videos on social media of people working out I don't even dislike it but I don't have any of the feelings I have about that because I think it's unfeminist or I think it's bad or I think it's anything at all it's just just, this question that I think for you personally of what was it giving to you what was it giving to me and also that's what it comes down to Victoria's Secret was what was it giving women as a whole totally and the fortunate rather than the unfortunate truth is that women have so many ways to make themselves feel empowered and healthy and sexy and happy and for so many women Victoria's Secret no longer held the answer. Yeah. That doesn't mean, incidentally, that there won't be a lot of people still following the angels and hoping for pictures of them in their underwear. Thank you very much for listening to The High Low. You can email us, thehighlowshow at gmail.com, or tweet us at The High Low Show. Bye-bye. See ya.